The Infernal Bodyguard Written by Santalatron Read by Literarian Summary Alistair Zerafel is a popular author, loved by everyone he meets. Well, almost everyone. Someone is trying to hurt him, and right now he needs a bodyguard. Anthony J. Crowley is the best, although he doesn't work with celebrities. He has three rules. He never gets too close, never stays once the job is done, and never gets involved. But this isn't a thriller. This is a love story. Chapter 1 First Impressions The Hamamelis was stunning at this time of year. Glowing in the low winter light against the evergreens, its spidery blooms in luminous shades of acid yellow all the way through to a rich burnt orange. Its scent in particular was good at catching visitors unawares as they walked past. Spicy, citrusy, warming, it really was a spectacular shrub, although some of the specimens here had been here long enough to grow into small trees. Agnes was particularly fond of them, which is why she always came here at this time of year. RHS Wisely wasn't far from London and had a wonderful collection of winter and early spring flowering plants in their woodland section. The public tended to head to the other side of the garden for the winter walk area, so she pretty much had the place to herself, save for the odd horticulturalist in sage green and purple volunteers helping with the maintenance. Agnes liked the Hamamelis for their fiery appearance, their defiant habit of sending forth these chaotic firework flowers in the middle of winter and, of course, their common name of Witch Hazel. People called her a witch in the past, so she felt some kinship to this bold plant. They said her ability to anticipate the right moment in the market had to be dark magic, her skill in spotting the right companies to invest in must be occult. As a result, her predictions for the business landscape in the coming year were treated as prophecies, and they were usually right, even if people didn't see it coming until it was on top of them. Less charitable people had also called her a nutter when she had told them she was in danger. They didn't believe her. She couldn't prove there was anyone trying to hurt her, it was just subtle hints, moments that others didn't see. It had been driving her crazy, but Agnes had always had a good sense of what was to come. She didn't know where it came from, but she had always been trusted, until now. Now she was just another woman making a fuss. Which is why she had hired Crowley. He had taken her seriously. 
and now he was kneeling on top of a very angry man, twisting one arm up behind him while he pushed his face down into the woodchip path. The pine chippings were so fresh that the scent was overpowering even the Sarkococca and Daphne nearby. It was almost minty in fragrance. There's a chemical in pine trees they use to synthesize menthol, Agnes thought as she stumbled backwards, her brain finding any excuse to escape from the reality in front of her as she stared at the knife still clamped firmly in the man's hand. Crowley was scanning the surrounding area for any further threats while he held down the struggling man. A horticulturalist was running over, having seen the commotion. She was already on her radio, sending up the alarm, but as she approached, she slowed, a look of confusion crossing her face as she looked at the man on the floor. She took in Crowley's expensive black suit, his short, burnished copper hair, his dark sunglasses and the snarl that bared teeth that were just on the unsettling side of pointy. We're going to need the police, she said into her radio. And quickly. Are you sure that that's him? Agnes spluttered. The man on the floor was wearing a horticulturalist's uniform and it wasn't unusual for them to be carrying knives for pruning. They wielded all sort of sharp and blunt objects designed for severing, digging and occasionally bashing when the winter protection was going up around the tender specimens. Yep, it's him, Crowley said simply. How? How did you know? She asked, eyes wide in fright. Crowley looked down at the man who was jostling around, trying half-heartedly to break free. Crowley had him in what he knew was an unbreakable restrained position, but the man tried anyway. They always did. Crowley twisted the wrist in his grip so Agnes could see his fingernails. Clean hands. No one who works in the soil doesn't have dirt under their fingernails. And shoes. He may have stolen the uniform, but he's wearing his own shoes. They always forget the shoes. Everyone who works in gardens wears steel toe cap boots for safety and they can be quite expensive, not to mention heavy. Plus, this is not a pruning knife, he explained, looking at the blade. And I'm sure... He glanced up at the real horticulturalist's name tag that Helen here will confirm he's not one of theirs. That's right, he doesn't work here, she confirmed distantly as Crowley carefully removed the knife from the attacker's hands. Helen was accustomed to sharp objects as evidenced by the items hanging from her tool belt. She'd never met a man who fell into that category, however, and found him somewhat disconcerting. We'd better take him out the back way she said, gesturing towards a path that was signposted no public access. 
And you can tell me what the hell is going on here. There you are, my dear, he said to the beaming woman, handing her the autographed book. I'm so glad you've enjoyed it. He returned her smile tenfold, eyes sparkling with delight. Somehow he'd managed to keep up this glowing aura of geniality for two hours now as he signed and dedicated book after book after book. Anathema eyed the waiting line carefully. She'd taken on the role of Alastair's assistant a few years ago quite eagerly, but she hadn't anticipated needing to look after him on such a personal level. She could see one of the upcoming fans looking quite jumpy. A short, round fellow who looked somewhat out of place with the rest of the queue. Maybe it was time for a short break. Alastair she said quietly in his ear. You've been here for two hours now. Perhaps a moment away might do you good. Toilet break and the like. The next fan stepped eagerly forward, thrusting her well-thumbed book onto the table in front of him, scattering the cards and gifts from well-wishers as she did so. Oh, I'm so sorry! She squealed, face contorting in horror at the mess as her face flushed in embarrassment. Not to worry, my dear, Alistair reassured her. I'll sort it out in just a tick. Give me your book. Now, what is your name? He glanced at Anathema as he scribbled the lady's name in the book on his knee, along with some encouraging words, and signed it with a flourish before handing it back to her with another radiant smile. He gave Anathema a slight nod and she stepped forward. The nervous fan was the next person in line and he was looking desperate at this point. May I have your attention, please, everyone? She shouted over the general chatter. Mr. Fowl is just taking a moment to refresh his tea while we get the table back in order, but don't worry, he'll be back in a jiffy. There was a general rise in noise levels, but Alistair's readers weren't the rioting type. Alistair had indeed bustled off to the back room of the bookshop when Anathema turned around to sort out the table. She collected up the cards and gifts and turned towards Alistair's publicist, Michael. She was currently talking to Gabriel's assistant, Newton, Newt for short. Of course, Gabriel hadn't bothered coming, despite being Alistair's editor. He rarely did, usually sending Newt in his place. Anathema was hoping Michael would see her with her arms full and help but apparently that was beneath her. Excuse me, said the desperate fan. Can I please just give you this to give to Alistair? I can't stay any longer, but I really want him to have it, he said. Anathema looked at him helplessly with her arms full of the other well-wishers' gifts and cards. Uh, I'll take it. Newt said, darting over and taking the box from the fan. 
he managed only a half-stumble this time. Oh, thank you, the fan said. Anathema threw him a grateful look, and they both headed for the back room. Anything to get away from that dreadful publicist, Newt muttered at Anathema once they were out of Michael's earshot. She chuckled. Newt might be a bit bumbling, but he had his heart in the right place, she thought. He was definitely growing on her. Anathema deposited the cards and gifts on the table set up for them in the back room and turned to head back out. Alistair should be back by now, so I'll head back out. Are you coming? she asked Newt. What? Oh, just, um, just give me a minute to get this all in order, in case we get, you know, more. He waved an arm at the table. Doesn't like crowds, Anathema recalled. Fair enough, take as long as you need. She gave him a quick smile and headed back out. Newt sat down at the table and exhaled sharply. He liked Anathema, she seemed to just get it. He idly fiddled with the box he'd brought in. It wasn't very big. It looked like wood, stained dark and had an ornate gold clasp on the front. Probably a fancy pen, he thought. His mind wandered back to Anathema, to her beautiful long dark hair, to the way she always seemed to know what he meant even if he didn't, to that kind smile she'd given him as she left. He didn't realize that his fiddling fingers had now opened the clasp and were starting to flick the lid of the box slightly open and closed. He realized what he was doing when he heard the strange clicking and grinding sound the box was making. He frowned at it and opened it properly and stared. Oh, not a pen. He needed to get anathema. When he returned with Alistair's assistant and somehow also Michael, the publicist in tow, they all stood around and stared at the box and at the strange, evil-looking mechanism that was inside it. There was a series of blades set waiting to prey on the hands that opened the box. Like a row of scorpions that were lining up to strike. If it had worked as intended, it would have caused a great deal of damage to those unsuspecting hands. It had been intended for Alistair. I was fiddling with it and I know I'm not supposed to, but I didn't mean to, but I just was without thinking and I'm sorry and it just sort of jammed and um, what do we do now? Newt stammered out in a rush, his voice somewhat higher than usual. We don't tell anyone, Michael said firmly. Alistair doesn't need to know, it will only upset him. No harm has been done, so let's just get rid of it and pretend it never happened. She looked at Anathema and Newt with a stern expression, 
turned on her heels and walked back out into the shop, replacing her usual smile that never quite made it to her eyes just as she opened the door. Newt put one hand out toward the nasty contraption to close the lid, but his usual bumbling nerves got the better of him and he misjudged the distance, bumping the box and causing one of the blades to shake loose and graze down his finger. He pulled his hand back quickly, looked at the blood starting to seep out of the cut, and paled. Oh, oh dear. He tried as he felt Anathema grab him by the shoulders and guide him to a chair. She quickly fetched a first aid kit, knelt down in front of him and bandaged up his finger. She was so calm, he noticed, while he was such a mess. She even looked pretty when she frowned. Sorry, not too good with with blood, he whimpered. Anathema rolled her eyes. You got lucky. Next time try to keep your hands to yourself. Now I need to get back out there. Will you be okay for a bit on your own in here? You don't need to come out. Newt nodded and watched her leave. He tried not to think of the way it felt when she had held his hand so gently while she knelt in front of him and where he might put his hands other than on himself. Then he tried not to think about actually putting his hands on himself. Must just be the shock from hurting himself. Yep, just adrenaline and nothing more. He narrowed his eyes at the box, but didn't try to pick it up this time. Crowley was back at his flat. Agnes had paid him handsomely, even trying to get him to stay on, but he had done his job and it was time to move on. He didn't like general security, he was much better when there was an immediate threat to focus his restless energy on. He'd been a bodyguard for a long time now and knew he wasn't cut out for just blindly following some vacuous celebrity around while they went shopping and had endless lunches. He was trained for high-stress situations where a snap decision could literally make the difference between life and death, not whether you regretted what you ordered for lunch. He thrived on danger, living life perpetually on the knife edge and always thrusting forwards. Crowley had tried regular protection and got so bored he ended up causing mischief just to keep his sanity. No, his skills and training were best used when they actually had a genuine threat to life. 
Besides, if he hung around too long, then clients worked out that his habit of being acerbic and sarcastic was just his personality, not the product of the situation they were in, and he ended up being let go regardless, so he had long ago realized it was easier to walk away than be pushed again. And now his latest mission had been completed, he was free to do as he pleased. And right now, that was as little as possible. At 38, he needed a bit more of a rest, so he had a few days, maybe a week, of pottering around before he would get restless and put the word out that he was available again. He was good at what he did, so it never took long to find another client, and emergency personal protection paid well. Very well. Which meant he could afford to have an extended break, if he wanted. He owned his flat in Mayfair outright, having paid off the mortgage some time ago, and even though he didn't spend a lot of time here, he needed to have somewhere to go between jobs, and he'd got used to the affluent surroundings of his assignments, although he told everyone it was an investment for his future. Or he would, if anyone ever asked. He'd chosen the top floor as he'd always liked being high up. As close to the sky as possible, remembering the feeling of calm, of freedom as he swooped and dived through the clouds. He was out on his balcony, feeling the wind rushing through his hair, blowing out all of the residual tension left over from the last assignment, when the phone rang. Hello, he answered. It never paid to give too much away up front. Is this Mr. Crowley? Mr. Anthony Crowley? A female voice replied, sounding hopeful and efficient. Probably a PA, he thought. Yep, he said, popping the P. What do you need? Wonderful. Could we meet? I think we need your services. Crowley looked back into his flat at the pile of takeaway containers he'd accumulated in the few days he'd had off. He didn't normally take on a job this quickly, but he could already feel his brain coming more into focus at the thought of a new assignment. Okay, Miss... Device. Anathema Device. Okay, Miss Device. When and where? Would tomorrow work for you? 2pm in St. James Park? Crowley smirked. He knew the park very well and wondered if this misty voice knew what a popular meeting place it was for a certain type of business associate. Namely, ones who liked to know that the only one who could hear them were the ducks. And the jury was still out on whether they could hear them at all. I'll bring the Schwarzbrot. He joked. See you tomorrow, Miss Device. He just caught her sound of confusion as he hung up. Crowley went back inside. It was cold on the balcony now, and with a potential client to meet tomorrow, he had some digging to do. 
He opened up his laptop, letting the fingerprint scanner unlock it, and got to work finding out everything he could about Anathema device. Anathema device had, indeed, turned out to be a PA, but that wasn't unusual. He often dealt with PAs at the start of an assignment. There were very few people in the world that could afford his services that didn't have PAs. Anathema, it turned out, was PA to Alastair Z. Raphael, a well-respected and popular author who was currently doing the rounds at book signings following the release of his latest book. Crowley didn't usually take on high-profile clients, but he had agreed to meet Miss Device so he would hear her out. At least it was a nice day, if a bit cold for an outside meeting at the end of January. The ducks didn't seem to mind, though, as long as there was a plentiful supply of bread. He tossed a couple of chunks out to some females who were being pushed out by the aggressive drakes and noticed a figure approaching to his right. Female, about the right age, and matching the grainy images he'd been able to find. He made no motion to let her know he'd seen her, instead watching her from behind his sunglasses as she walked right past him and sat down on an empty bench. After a few minutes, she got out a book and began to read. Crowley waited ten minutes, and having observed no tantrums, he threw out the last of his bread and sauntered over. Afternoon, he said, letting his shadow fall over the book. Mr. Crowley, thank you for joining me. I didn't want to interrupt, she said, putting her book away and gesturing toward the ducks. Crowley was surprised. It was rare for someone to work out who he was at a first meeting, and frankly, he was impressed. Not to worry, he said. Shall we walk and talk? He swung his arm out toward the centre of the park. He'd learned long ago that he always thought better when he was in motion. Anathema stood up and fell into step next to him. Well, as much as it was possible, with someone who walks as if they only have a passing acquaintance with their limbs. Crowley subtly nodded an acknowledgement to two men in dark suits sat on another bench who had been eyeing him nervously. Friends of yours? Anathema asked. Observant, too, Crowley thought. Just some old acquaintances from my days in diplomatic protection. Now, tell me more about your boss, Crowley said. Anathema looked at him sharply from the corner of her eye, but let him change the subject. As you've probably looked up by now, I work for Alistair Fell. He's an author, and his latest book in the Warlock series has just come out, so we're currently touring around doing all sorts of book signings and publicity events. She spat out the last part with evident distaste. 
Alistair has his fans, like anybody in the public eye, and like the rest of them, not all of his fans are quite so... fantastic. Last week we had an... incident, and I think it's time we started taking some of the less complimentary correspondence a bit more seriously. Which is where you come in. This is a delicate situation, Mr. Crowley, and I'm told you are the best. Although, I'll admit, you're not quite what I was expecting when I heard about your previous jobs. Unexpected can be used as a tactical advantage, Miss Device, if you know what you're doing. I'm afraid I don't normally take high-profile clients these days, though. This celebrity lifestyle is not for me, so thank you for your call, but you'll have to find someone better suited to his lifestyle. Anathema snorted at this. <laughs> he's not a pop star, Mr. Crowley. He's not out all hours drinking and partying. He mostly hides himself away in his library in the evening with a glass of fancy gin. If you meet him, you'll see he's not your usual celebrity type. And I do hope you meet him, Mr. Crowley, because you are exactly what we need. The fees won't be a problem. She turned to him and stopped. Frankly, Mr. Crowley, we're all scared. Alice, Mr. Fell won't cause you any hassle, I promise. It'll be £3,000 a week, Crowley said, aiming high. It usually put clients off. He would have said no outright, but he liked Anathema. She seemed sensible, so he could be fairly sure that if she thought there was a threat, then it was a credible one. Done. Do you need the address, or have you already found it? She asked. Crowley hid his surprise at the lack of negotiation with a smirk. I'll see you there tomorrow, he said, and strode off lazily waving one hand over his head. Ciao. Anathema rolled her eyes. Mr. Crowley was unconventional, but she knew Alistair wouldn't cope with a standard off-the-shelf security expert. She just had to hope he would be willing when they met tomorrow. The next day, Crowley arrived on foot at Alistair Fell's house, bundled up from the crisp winter weather in a large, black woolen coat and black leather gloves. He wore a cashmere scarf that was black with a thin line of red down one edge. He'd never bothered owning a car, as living in London meant he could get around very easily and most of his time was spent with clients where he travelled with them. As he arrived, he reflected that house applied to the property in front of him about as much as boat applies to a luxury yacht. It was a mansion. And it was in Soho. Actually, it was probably a decent chunk of this corner of Soho overlooking Soho Square Gardens to the west. Suddenly, £3,000 a week didn't sound quite so much. 
He pressed the intercom button and it crackled into life and garbled something at him, presumably asking him who he was. Jonathan Crawley, to see Mr. Fell. Miss Device invited me, he drawled. He got back another garbled response. Crawley, Jonathan, do you have a duck in there? Are its ears working? Wait, do they even have ears? Apparently, this must have been a satisfactory response, as the gate swung open and he walked through. There was a modest front garden, this was still London after all, with a path that led up to a maroon front door and he could see a gated driveway with a garage to the right. The house was detached and looked Victorian in construction, possibly slightly older, but it had clearly had some work done at some point. He could see a stone balcony to the front on the second floor, overlooking the park, and not a single camera in sight. Crowley waited by the gate, but nobody appeared. After a while, he wandered over to the garage. The door was open and inside? Well, inside was the most seductive piece of automotive design he had ever seen. It was a classic 1934 Bentley, black with dark grey down the side of the engine and the iconic suicide doors. The lights stood proudly on their own at the front and the whole thing was gleaming, the black paint still unfaded and so deep it felt like you would find galaxies in it if you looked hard enough. It seemed as if it was moving even whilst stationary and Crowley could almost feel the wind in his hair as he imagined zooming around country lanes in it. It was an absolute dream of a car, from its winged bee hood ornament to its tartan-strapped bicycle rack. Presumably for the vintage Dutch bike leaning against the wall on the other side of the garage with Phaeton written on it. Crowley strolled leisurely over to the car, hips swaying while he removed a glove and reached out to stroke a hand along its sublime curves. Oi! The shout startled Crowley, but with his sunglasses on, you'd never had known. Years of training meant he was very, very good at hiding his emotions when he needed to. All except for his eyes, but that's why he always wore expensive designer sunglasses. That, and it looked stylish. He turned toward the source of the shout and saw a young woman in overalls wiping her hands on a cloth, striding towards him with purpose. He slouched as she approached, removing the other glove and stashing them in his coat pockets. I've just finished that, so keep your grubby fingers off it. Who are you anyway? she asked. Crowley evaluated her from behind his sunglasses. Fairly young, bold, judging by her response to him. Her overalls looked well used, so she was used to hard work. Shoes, though, shoes were slim and sporty and bright red. Not a mechanic's shoes, 
Those were driving shoes. James Crowley, to see Mr. Fell, just admiring this exquisite machine. You the chauffeur? She looked at him slightly surprised, as if she wasn't used to people getting her profession right. Yes, yes I am. She narrowed her eyes at him again and folded her arms over her chest. And I'm willing to bet I'm a better driver than you are before you try any silly comments. Crowley liked her. Wouldn't dream of it, miss. Pepper, and don't call me miss. Wouldn't dream of it, Pepper. If I do drive, it falls into the evasive tactics category or occasionally aggressive manoeuvres, both of which are borderline legal at the best of times and neither of which are recommended in the centre of a city, so I'm in no position to mansplain your job to you. He grinned at her, all teeth and smug satisfaction. Hm. Well, I doubt very much you'll get any aggressive manoeuvres out of this old girl. Might look like a fish, but she steers like a cow, was her grumbled response. Although he felt like he'd passed her test. Alistair's in the house, probably reading. Find anathema first and don't go in the kitchen without her. Tracy will be in there she said sternly, gesturing towards the door that linked the garage to the main house. I assure you, Tracy will be perfectly safe with me, Pepper, Crowley said with a smirk as he turned towards the door. Pepper snorted a laugh. <laughs> Dressed like that, it's you I'm more worried about. <laughs> She laughed as she nodded towards his skin-tight black jeans before turning back towards the car. You missed the spot, he said brightly and strode off through the door before Pepper could respond. So that's Pepper, Anathema and Tracy, he thought. All women. Crowley started to wonder what sort of man surrounded himself with women in this fashion. It wasn't a pleasant thought. The garage door led through to a corridor with a small bathroom off one side and a utility room off the other. At the other end of the corridor was the entrance hall. It had a grand sweeping staircase down the right-hand side with rolled oak banisters and a pale carpet held back by rods. The hall continued underneath the sweeping stairs to the rooms beyond. The entrance hall itself had oak panelling and a tiled floor with a geometric pattern of whites and pale blue. Once again, it was entirely devoid of life and eerily quiet. He had removed his coat, hanging it over his arm, and with the other hand was spending a few moments adjusting his artfully tousled hair in the large mirror by the front door when he heard footsteps approaching. From down the hall came a severe-looking middle-aged woman with her hair piled high on her head in a style reminiscent of a mohawk. She wore a suit and Oxfords, which clicked down the tiled hallway as she walked in. Her face was buried in her phone, typing as she walked. She was concentrating so much she nearly walked straight into Crowley, 
only realizing there was anyone there when he tapped his snakeskin boot on the tiles to alert her. As soon as she looked up to see him, she gave him a brief, business-like once-over, and her face broke out into the least genuine smile Crowley had ever seen. Forget reaching her eyes, this smile didn't even seem to reach the corners of her mouth. Why, hello, I'm so sorry I wasn't made aware of your arrival. How can I help you, mister? Crowley, Jacob Crowley, he supplied, returning an equally insincere smile. Mr. Crowley, I'm Michael, Alice, Mr. Fell's publicist. Are you here for an interview? Mr. Fell is just in his study, but I'm sure he'll be happy to come down and chat with you. What organization did you say you were with? Crowley was raking his brains thinking of a literary magazine when Anathema stepped out of the doorway on the opposite side of the hall. Anathema! Michael trilled. Jacob Crowley is here for an interview, but I don't have him scheduled in my calendar. Do try to remember to inform me when you set these up, please. It makes it easier all round. Now! She turned back to Crowley. Can I take your coat? Would you like some tea? We have quite the selection. We can have the interview in the front room. Anathema, see to some tea, would you? Michael put a hand out to take his coat, but he stood still and just looked towards Anathema. She had a thoughtful smirk on her face, so he raised one eyebrow over his sunglasses at her. Michael dithered between them. Jacob? Anathema asked finally, before rolling her eyes and turning to Michael. It's all right, Michael, you can stand down. This is Anthony Crowley, the personal security specialist we talked about. Michael's arm dropped and her expression turned hard. I see, she said coldly. Crowley just shrugged. He stuck a hand out, inviting her to shake it. Call me Crowley, he tried, but Michael simply pursed her lips, turned smartly on her heels and clicked away over the tiles with her nose in the air. Don't worry about her, Anathema said. She just doesn't like getting things wrong. She'll come around at some point. Either that or she'll come after you ruthlessly. She shrugged, then took his coat and scarf and hung them in a cupboard by the door. Come on, Alistair's up here, she said as she turned and headed for the stairs. Crowley followed quietly. Michael's demeanor was incongruous with the opinion he was forming of the master of the house, as was the way everyone kept referring to him by his first name but correcting to the more formal address. Crowley was becoming curious. He inspected the art on the walls as he followed Anathema up the stairs. Now Crowley liked art. He had become a bit of a connoisseur over the years and he was rather proud of the Da Vinci sketch he had in his own home. It was an early practice piece for the Mona Lisa and it had cost him a considerable amount of money. However, the art on these walls made it look like pocket change. Holy shit, is that a constable? Crowley said, 
pointing to a medium-sized painting on the far wall. Its characteristic pastoral scene was dwarfed by the expanse of exquisite, ethereal, cloud-filled sky above it. Alistair likes the romantic masters, Anathema said without stopping. He has quite a few original pieces. Come on, he's in the bookshop. On the second floor was a landing that wrapped around the stairwell. There were several doorways, and Anathema led them through the nearest one. Crowley was not prepared for what he saw behind that door. The entire second floor of the house turned out to be a vast library. Large openings had been made in the walls that separated the original rooms to open up the entire space and every wall was covered in shelves upon shelves of books with more shelving units built into the centre. The ceilings were high, but heavy curtains surrounded the large windows, reducing the light and making the space feel surprisingly cosy. A cursory glance showed no obvious filing method, but each and every book appeared well cared for. There were plush, chintzy armchairs dotted around, each with its own lamp and table next to it, and in one corner a nut-brown Chesterfield sofa with a tartan throw over it, accompanied by a low coffee table. Bookshops, in my experience, are usually a bit more public. This is a library, Crowley said flatly, turning to Anathema. Oh, oh, sorry, yes, Alistair used to own a bookshop many years ago until he realized just how much he hated selling the books, so he shut the shop and moved everything here. He still refers to it as the bookshop, though, so so do we, she said. Crowley nodded and made a small grunt of understanding. He must be on the other side. I did tell him you were coming, but he tends to get caught up when he's reading, she said, gesturing for him to follow. Anathema walked briskly through the library slash bookshop, checking each corner as they moved between the rooms. Crowley meandered after her, noting the sheer quantity of knickknacks and paraphernalia that punctuated the books on the shelves. There was a bit of a theme. Finally, they ended up in a room at the back of the house, overlooking the small back garden. This room had a sizable patch of wall devoid of bookshelf. In its place was a cast-iron fireplace, and hung above it a large painting depicting a man and a woman lounging under a tree with a cat and a goat off to one side. Both naked, although the woman was demurely turned away from the viewer, with her head twisted coquettishly back at the man, and the man had some tastefully draped greenery just about preserving his modesty. In the centre of the room was a large table laid with tea and biscuits, and sat at the table was a vaguely middle-aged man, dressed in keeping with the age of the house, in a pale jacket and velvet waistcoat that looked as though it had seen a lot of wear. 
he managed to avoid the usual stiff demeanor that typified the gentleman of that era, however, and instead his broad shoulders and rounded torso merely made him look at ease. Crowley wondered if he felt as soft as he looked, then abruptly banished that thought. Alistair. His name is Alistair, thought Crowley, was looking down at a book on the table in front of him with a slight frown, strikingly pink lips pressed together in concentration and one hand holding a cup of tea that had paused halfway to his mouth. Anathema coughed in the universal language of polite interruption and the man looked up, saw the two of them standing there and smiled. It was a genuine smile as well, almost blinding in its sincerity. It didn't help that the morning winter sun was low, so it streamed through the windows and caught his pale blonde hair from behind, making it glow around his softly rounded face as if he wore a halo. Crowley couldn't help but stare. The man put down his cup, stood up and walked around the table towards them. He's wearing a bow tie. Crowley thought. A tartan bow tie that he's wearing to just read at home. He stuck his hand out towards Crowley, inviting him to shake it. You must be the infamous Mr. Crowley. I'm Alistair Fell, but everyone calls me Alistair. It's a pleasure to meet you. His words were carefully enunciated, his tone brisk, implying a formal education. The smile on his face made it clear that he absolutely meant his sentiment. Crowley wasn't used to people being pleased to see him. Relieved, yes, he tended to meet people when they were scared and needed help, but pleasure was a novelty. Crowley took his hand and shook it. Alistair's hand was soft, but hinted at an underlying strength that he was well used to restraining. Likewise, Crowley drawled, allowing his face to be taken over by a lazy grin. Alistair's face flickered as his eyes darted down the length of Crowley, taking this newcomer in with sunglasses, form-fitting black clothes and insouciant slouch, all sharp angles and elbows, before peeling away from the handshake. Alistair's mouth gave the barest hint of curling up on one side as Crowley returned the hand to his pocket, deliberately not dwelling on the way it felt unusually empty, having only held Alistair's for a moment. In the months to come, Crowley would pinpoint this moment as where it all started to go wrong. 